Hello and welcome to the Freshnal Horror Podcast, the only podcast that, I don't know, is a podcast. It's trying its best, guys. I am, once again, your host, Chris Donovan. And my guest this week is my good friend, Caroline Drake Coyle. How are you doing, Carrie? I'm good. How are you doing, Chris? I'm doing pretty dope, honestly. Cool. Pretty dope. Dope's a good thing. Always shoot for dope. Always <laughs> shoot for dope. Oh, no. <laughs> Just don't well, shoot. I was going to say, you should specify. <laughs> specify the four in there not don't shoot dope shoot for dope there you go words of wisdom we don't condone drugs here on the professional horror podcast we do not we condone coffee a ton of it but that's and it. mountain dew and mountain dew brought to you by your sponsors Sorry. oh man i wish i <laughs> wish so we have a new guest on the show so every time we have a new guest we do everyone or i don't know i kind of like the segment everyone's favorite segment first blood where we get to know our guests so you see what lens we view horror through get to know us a little bit we're gonna ask for favorite horror movie and our favorite sub genre of horror movies if this is your first time my favorite horror movie of all time is 1984's a nightmare on elm street and my favorite sub genres are slashers and creature features so carrie favorite horror movie favorite subgenre. what do you got all right so you already know my favorite horror movie because i think i've told it to you about 20 billion times <laughs> but it is the descent oh the descent's so good I, one day we're gonna i'm gonna have to do an episode on the descent on this podcast yeah Hmm. I am. Hmm, hmm. I wonder who will be your your speaker for hmm. that one. I don't know. Foreshadowing. <laughs> that is like you know my favorite of all time horror movie, and it shouldn't be no surprise that it goes hand in hand with my favorite subgenre, which is psycho thriller. Hmm. Uh, so anything that has to do with like psychological, like you know fucking horror and stuff i'm sorry i should have asked can i swear on this podcast yeah go ahead we swear on the show okay cool yeah so psycho horror psycho thriller those are my favorite subgenres of horror so there you go it's like i feel like since we talk about murder and stuff there's no way we can get a this can be a clean podcast so let's just go for the swears anyway <laughs> okay cool i'll try to tone it down though and not be <laughs> dirty yeah, I, I try not to go like low. full on but if it yeah. slips who cares okay cool sounds good yeah, The Descent is a classic, and psychological thrillers, that seems to be a recurring thing with each guest, is that a lot of people's favorite subgenre is psychological thrillers, because it's just and I can't blame them, it's just great. It's amazing, like, don't get me wrong, I love paranormal, and I love anything that has to do with aliens, but... Obviously, Aliens, the movie, fantastic horror yeah. movie. But when it comes to just a psycho thriller, like you could say that The Descent is more of a creature feature slash gory sort of movie, but that's not looking at it through the lens of just the actual movie is the descent of our main character into madness. Mm -hmm. And it just, it shows so brilliantly, which, you know, my second favorite horror movie I'd have to say is Aliens. Third favorite, Baba Duke, which is another oh, really gosh. good, I know, really good psycho thriller. So there you go. Aliens is my yeah. Aliens is my favorite movie of all time, but I just don't classify it as a pure horror because it is a lot of action sci-fi stuff. Yeah, it falls but it's it's just the greatness. It's it's just one of the most brilliant movies ever made. It's just so quotable. I I love it to pieces. <laughs> a winning ticket for me, as we're going to get into with the movie we're talking about today. Even if you're not the best thing, if you're quotable, you're going to win points in my book. Agreed. I mean, you can talk about Napoleon Dynamite to the, like, you know, pretty much, like, just kind yeah. of going off of quotable movies. It's a very quotable movie. Yeah. Like, one of my favorite movies growing up, and still one of my favorite movies today, probably, is Tremors. And I wouldn't call Tremors a fantastically amazing movie, but I it's would. the most quotable <laughs> thing ever. I mean, yeah. Let's be real. But you know what I mean? It's not, like, people wouldn't classify that as top-tier horror movies, but right. it's just so fun. 
Yeah. Like, how can you not love Tremors? How can you not just put it on whenever it's on sci-fi and just quote oh every yeah. line? It was funny because the first time I'd ever, not ever, but the first time I'd watched that movie since I was like a teenager in its entirety was when we were in the Right Club cabin. Mm. And I remember just sitting down and being like being transported back to like my 12-year-old self, like, oh my <laughs> God, I love this movie. It's such a good movie. Yeah, that was one of those movies where every time it was on when I was at home on like Saturday mornings, whatever, whenever it's on sci-fi, <gasps> Tremors is on, let's put it on. Yes. And yes. just whatever part of the movie it's in, we're like, I'm in. It's It's, perfect. it's time I'm to go. I, I know everything that happened before this. I don't need to yep. have background. I'm in. Do it. <laughs> but yeah, a quotable movie is, is a winning combination. That's why yes. Aliens is so great and Tremors and all those movies. And... The movie we're talking about today isn't the best movie, but damn, is it quotable. We are talking about 1989's Pet Cemetery today. Yep. Based on some guy's novel. I don't know who. You know, some, some guy. Some He's not like writer. a favorite author in the world or anything. Just some dude. <laughs> Stephen King, I think it was. Yeah, I don't know. I've barely heard of him. It's not like I have an entire <laughs> bookshelf devoted to him. Uh, I'm super excited to be talking about this movie because I had a conversation with a good friend of ours, Nicole, about the fact that as a teenager, I forced her to sit through this movie because I loved the book so much and you know when you see a movie that you've kind of amped up in your head for so long that you convince yourself it's amazing Mm -hmm. that's kind of how I was at that point so I was like oh my god that was like the best movie ever it was so good and Nicole's sitting there she's like no it wasn't it was kind of awful (laughs) and now given 15 years watching it again I'm like oh Jesus yeah this is this is not great (laughs) yeah it's one of those movies where I feel like once you've read the book yeah it it, it never stood a chance really it doesn't stand a chance but not only that the movie like if you're just remembering it from like a few years ago you remember that at least briefly touches upon almost every bit of the book so it's like you kind of just assume that the rest of the good stuff was in there too well, that's the problem with like rewatching it now at like 28 versus watching it for the first time at 14. I can kind of appreciate the fact that it does something that, you know, a lot of book to movie adaptations do. It touches on the main plot points, but it does not capture the essence and the soul mm-hmm. of the book perfect example for me at least would be the harry potter movies fantastic books hate the movies because it completely yeah they're just awful like it's it's almost like a shadow of itself for in regards to pet cemetery yeah i can't comment on the harry potter movies because i haven't seen them since i have become an adult so i can't tell ever since i became knowledgeable on what makes a good movie i haven't seen them again i had to sit through them yeah i i have i'm the oldest of like 20 cousins so i've sat through them multiple times babysitting and it was just it's it's painful each time yeah it's one of those things where it's i almost hate the fact that i i went to film school and learned how to be a screenwriter so now i know so much more about movie structure and how movies work that it's just like all these movies that i thought were good i go back and i'm like oh God, yep, what is that? Is is exactly that for me. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, oh, I stick man. to my, I think I've told you before, Pet Cemetery for me was the first Stephen King book I ever read. And I still believe it is probably the best Stephen King book I've ever read. Close, obviously, with like Carrie and The Stand is in there too for me. I fucking love The Stand. I love it. I love Carrie. But for me, Pet Cemetery is... It's so no BS. It's straight to the point. It is a story and it is a terrifying story. And mm. it does all of that without having to be super gory. Yeah. In preparation for this podcast, I reread Pet Cemetery. In fact, the edition of Pet Cemetery that I read was gifted 
to me by you, Carrie, in our Secret Santa thing that we were involved in a few months ago. Well, Thank sure. you very much for that. You are very welcome. Yay. And after rereading it, I probably have to agree it probably is the best Stephen King book. Like I read a lot of Stephen King in middle school and then I stopped reading like in general in yeah. high school and most of college <laughs> because English classes killed my love of reading. And now that I'm back to enjoying reading again, I'm like going through Stephen King books. I've read, you know, It, The Shining, Dr. Sleep, Carrie, Salem's Lot. Oh, so good. Yeah. All of these in a row. And then I'm like reading Pet Cemetery. I'm like, yeah, this is. It's his best. This is the one. It's his best. It really is. And that's, and that's saying something because I am a huge Stephen King fan and have been like my entire life. But for me, Pet Cemetery is always going to be his most terrifying book. Basically, what Stephen King does is he combines the recognizable like mundane fears of like everyday life and combines them with like supernatural forces so his horror in this book in particular is realistic the real horror isn't just oh well there's this land that brings dead things back the real horror is this is what a family looks like when they lose a child and this is mm -hmm. how this man goes insane yeah so he takes that idea of like losing a child and the horror that is very realistic combines it with this supernatural element of the pet cemetery which yeah. to me is brilliant and that's what makes it all the more terrifying and it's it's hard i feel like to capture a lot of that because there's a lot of internal strife internal struggle yeah. like you were saying earlier with it it's a movie that touches on all the major elements but doesn't have the spirit of it yeah. where i i would counter that with like the exact opposite in the end of the spectrum i feel like is like the recent it movie it chapter one doesn't follow the book really at all because it moves from the 50s to the 80s so none of the plot points are that similar but it just feels so rich and all the characters are so rich where it just feels like that's it even though it's not it at all yeah technically yeah for me i actually haven't seen the new one but i've heard nothing but good things about it it's uh, real good yeah, for me, the, the miniseries for me was just because perfect. The cool thing about the miniseries and the movie, though, is that the movie came out 27 years after the miniseries. Did it really? I didn't yes. know that. That's awesome. 1990 to 2017 came out 27 Great. years later. That's terrifying. Just like, just like Pennywise. It's so <laughs> cool. It's so cool. They did that. Yay. <laughs> Reminds me of Twin Peaks, but I won't go into that rabbit hole. <laughs> oh, God. All right, so quickly, some, some background information on Pet Cemetery for those who are unaware. So Pet Cemetery for those who have not seen the movie or read the book, it is about the Creed family, Lewis, Rachel, and their two kids, Ellie and Gage, who move from Chicago to Ludlow, Maine, after Lewis gets a job as a doctor at the University of Maine. And they live on this road where a lot of trucks go by. According to their neighbor, Judd Crandall, it chews up a lot of pets, or it goes through a lot of pets, as I should say. The book and movie follow them as they live their life for the first part and then have to deal with the death of their cat church and then their child gauge later on and the mystical pet cemetery that awaits just on the outskirts of their property pet cemetery has a 6.6 .6 out of 10 rating on imdb 48 percent approval on rotten tomatoes and 38 percent approval on metacritic the rotten tomatoes Critical consensus is Pet Cemetery is a bruising horror flick that wears its quirks on its sleeves to the detriment of its scare factor. It's pretty harsh. I, yeah, pretty that, harsh, that kind but of, it kind of that, it, it's correct though. I have a note here yeah. from when I was watching it 
just solidly a B slasher film. If that kind of captures what I think of the movie. Yeah, it's it's not necessarily a absolutely winning movie, but it's, there's a few things it does well enough, and it's quotable it enough where I'm like, you know what, it's whatever. I it's, could throw it on and have a good time. It's entertaining enough that you can get through it, yeah. yeah. If you want me to start with stuff that I like about the movie, I have a little list here to go through. <laughs> Director of a second Halloween Town movie, by the way, in your notes. Mary Lambert, yes. the director of Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. Solid reference. Wasn't that Calabar's Revenge, if I'm not mistaken? Calabar's Revenge, yes. Well, it was not the best one. The first one's the best, nope. but come on. Nope. Or Calamac. Calamac is Calamac, whatever. The fact that I was able to pronounce, get like four out of the five syllables of that name after like 20 years is pretty impressive. I'm impressed. Found that out. I wanted to know what other movies she had done because I hadn't heard She hadn't done a whole lot, actually. She didn't, yeah. This was like her biggest film, I think. And What's then- funny is... Pet Cemetery is like five minutes away, basically, from being good in like four different ways. I completely agree, but let's hear what you Because the original director attached to the movie was George Romero, a.k.a. Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Living Dead, Day of the Living Dead. Oh, that could have been so good. And I don't know if you know this, but this could be absolutely heartbreaking for you if you haven't heard this already. The person originally slated to play Lewis Creed was Bruce Campbell. Are you serious? That would have been brilliant. Oh, we missed yep. out on a brilliant movie. Damn it. Yep. Could you imagine this movie, George Romero and Bruce Campbell? It would have been great. Oh, I want to <laughs> go to the alternate universe where this happened. Where that existed, yeah. Where that existed. That sounds brilliant. Yeah, because nothing against Dale Midkiff, but I mean. He's... <sighs> bland very bland bland. well even going i mean i have a note here about denise crosby (laughs) which is heartbreaking to me because as a 90s kid who didn't have a crush on denise crosby as a child Mm -hmm. the acting like everything was so so either over the top or so underplayed like the entire time i I, I, like there was no believable point where i felt connected to the lewis character which granted i feel like in the book even i Mm -hmm. feel like a lot of stephen king protagonists are very bland that seems harsh and i'm probably not 100 accurate on this but lewis creed for example i think in the book even is pretty bland also the, the main character of salem's lot is just kind of like yeah blank slate well there's also the additional help in the book though versus the movie that we have lewis's internal monologue mm-hmm. the entire time for the most part it's like a third person closely centered on lewis for most of the book yep. so even though he is kind of just an everyman we get peeks into his subconscious and his actual thoughts and stuff, which helps us a lot to connect with him because as most people in the book state after his son dies, he's very much just shut down. So it would be hard to connect, I guess, with somebody who was portraying that on screen anyway. But right. It's one of those things where he looked like he was shut down from the opening scene and not from yeah, when his son died. Exactly. It was very much the opposite of The Shining, where we don't have a crazy person from the start. We have someone who's just emotionally shut down from the beginning. Yep. So. You need to just take a little bit off of Jack Nicholson's edges and hand it to... Yeah, if we could have just Creed. swapped them for, like, the beginning... <laughs> A little bit, it would have been fine. Actually, I have a note here about the melodrama in just the whole beginning sequence. Just the whole opening act to me just Mm -hmm. felt like Denise Crosby was overacting the entire time. Oh, yeah. Well, it's one of those things where she, in the book, too, she's also pretty, like, emotional, I feel like. She is, for sure. Like, she she goes, when she freaks out from, like, even mentioning death, it's just like, dude, come down a little crazy there again how can you portray that in an hour and a half movie yeah no 
no, without again, having her come off as crazy. And that's the problem, I think, with a lot of the Stephen King books is it's really hard to capture everything that's going on, like the soul of the book, I guess you could say, in screen in such a short amount of time, which yep. I guess is why it's a good thing that they're breaking the It movies up. I think there's even talks of a Stand movie coming out. They tried mm-hmm. to make the Stand way back when with, um, oh, what is her name? Crap, crap, crap. She's in The Breakfast Club. Molly Ringwald? Molly Ringwald is in The Stand and it's awful. But that's, again, you're trying to do something in a very short amount of time in a book that could beat somebody to death. Like, it's yeah. a huge-ass book. It is definitely hard, I think, to do sometimes get the essence of Stephen King's work into a I film. I feel like if I were to say what a Pet Cemetery movie should be, it would need to be very, like, not necessarily stylized, but definitely a little bit more style to it, a little bit less realistic in certain parts as far as, like, say, atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot of visual storytelling would be necessary, I think, I to agree. get across. Yeah, because the only other way to kind of get around the fact that we're missing out on all this internal monologue is the fact that we'd have to show the viewer stuff mm-hmm. that's happening on screen. Which, last night, I also watched Starry Eyes, which is... Yes. The directors of that movie are going to be helming a Pet Cemetery remake. It's currently in the works. No release date, no script yet, but they're, okay. they're attached to it. And after watching it, I can see why they were th- thought of. Are definitely. they very stylized? There's definitely some style. There's definitely some visual storytelling that's very interesting. There's even a scene where someone does get reborn and emerges through a grave. It's also super intense. It's basically... Well, that's, kind of, that's perfect because this is a very intense story. Starry Eyes is a movie I would recommend watching, but under the right circumstances. It is not a movie night movie. Okay. Think of it. Sit down and focus on this and try not to freak out too much movie. The best way I can describe it is imagine Harvey Weinstein, the horror movie. (gasps) Okay. (laughs) It's it's a struggling actress trying to get her big break. Uh, Okay, gotcha. There's some... And it's also got a lot of body horror in it because she's like literally like, you know, killing her old self to get her new self kind of thing. Terrifying stuff. That's actually, that sounds perfect for Pet Cemetery, though. It does. It does. That is, I I mean, I was like, this is in good hands. No, that's good because that kind of brings me back to what we were talking about before with the blandness of the movie. I just felt like overall, having a movie visually and like story wise and stuff, having stuff on the screen be understated to get a big point across can be great. Like there's that entire scene in, well, I shouldn't say the scene itself is understated. The opening scene of Private Ryan, definitely not understated, but just the action, there's just one snippet in that scene of the guy who's carrying his arm around and just Mm -hmm. like looking for his arm, picks it up and walks away. That to me captures exactly what I wanted to see this kind of movie do. Just, yeah, it's it's horrific. There's a lot of horror going on, but it's also a very understated, like uh, what do you call it, plot itself like not a lot a whole lot of violence and action happens until gage comes back yeah and also the visuals i felt this is a weird point but of the visuals itself don't convey enough of the sadness and the uh, depression of the movie it's very there's a lot of warm vibrant bright oranges and yellows in the movie as opposed to i think probably like a blue tint would be really nice well even if even if they had opened up with all of like that light and color and warmth and then went to the darkness that does because in the beginning it is a very light-hearted warm story of a family moving yep. their budding family it's a very nice thing and then the pet cemetery happens there's definitely ways to convey that hmm. visually like the reverse of the babadook 
Precisely. That is a start very, with exactly. Yeah. Yep. Start with the warm colors and then gradually make the colors colder and, and darker. darker until it's yeah. the end act, which is just like enveloped in darkness, pretty much. Which would it be fitting? Extremely fitting yeah. for that kind of movie. Yeah. When you're dealing with a killer kid, darkness is your friend. Darkness is your friend, especially since in the book, Gage is not supposed to just have a single little scratch here. Gage got yeah. run over by an Orinco truck. Um, exactly. And his head has been sewn back onto his body. He's just a mess. He's those a Undertakers mess. were miracle workers. Yeah, I mean, those uh, embalmers. Exactly. That is the point. He is a freaking mess, which if you were to actually try to do that in this film would be helpful because then you don't mm. need to show the full extent of his injuries in like broad light the way they do in this film. And again, yeah. like in the movie, Gage has one little scratch right here and that's it. Like, man, little little face scratch and that's it and i'm like honey you got hit by a truck yeah and also like his hair is a different color and so like i know what they were doing i know they were doing a mirroring with zelda which zelda those scenes they did right so i was gonna say despite all of my harsh words and language for this movie some of the stuff that i had praised for andrew i don't know how to pronounce his name hubba text h-u-b-a-t-s-e-k-s i'm hubba text i'm not sure let's go with that Anyway, the guy they had depicting Zelda, whose name I just butchered, and I'm really sorry, Andrew. Andrew H. <laughs> Andrew H. Honestly, that might have been the best acting in the entire movie. The short snippet he was on screen for. And I have it in my notes here that, you know, for the most part, I think that just having a man to play this role was a brilliant idea. Just because his depiction of Zelda, it falls right into that sweet spot of the Uncanny Valley, where you know something is wrong, but he plays the role so convincingly that you can't, like, laugh at it. You can't laugh the wrongness off. It's so terrifying the way he's got his back bent and his face is, like, gone. It really does fit the portrayal of Zelda that we see in the book, because Stephen King kind of describes Zelda as having her face pulled down like a mask. Mm -hmm. It's it's terrifying, and I think he did just, just such a brilliant job of depicting her on screen. So having her and her his voice and everything was just so perfect. And then the other person I thought personally did a fantastic job was uh, Fred Gwynn. So fantastic. He's, I, he's the best. He's the best. Like I said, that accent gets into my head and days after rewatching the movie, I hear him saying like, sometimes dead is bitter. Yeah. And I'm like, the yes. The of a man's heart, Lois, is stonier. Yeah, you do it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> I literally exactly. was like, I watched like a video of it. And for the next week, I was like, I'm going to get this down so I can just, and I just like started breaking into it, like in normal conversation. <laughs> Sometimes dad is better. Like yeah. even when reading the book, I had Fred Gwynn's voice you say all to. the lines. You have, exactly. It's just so perfect. It's so pitch perfect for that role. Because like, if me. I just read A-Y-U-H, I'd be like, yeah. But just after watching it, I, yeah. It's like, yeah, you know, it's him. Yeah. No, he just does such a brilliant job. And like I said, like I watched this when I was 14 for the first time after reading the book. And ever since then, every time I reread Pet Cemetery, he is Judd in my head. Because he just he he's Judd. He just does such a perfect job of capturing that character. Even though like Lewis is bland and Rachel is over the top, he's Judd. He's perfect. Yeah. And yeah. And Ellie is, let's just say, some people were born to be actors and some people weren't. Yes. And that's what I'll say. That is, that is all you'd say with that little girl. <laughs> the one concern I do have about a Pet Cemetery remake is the new Judd. Because I listened to the BBC radio 
audio reading of Pet Cemetery. I still need to listen to that. Yeah, it's it's good, but it's not as good as Salem's Lot. The BBC okay. BBC Radio one they did for that. I think because Salem's Lot, there's more going on, and there's an actual yeah. like constant villainous force. So there's more you can have, I guess. Yeah, that's true. But with Judd Crandall, like his voice was fine, but it's just it wasn't Judd. He wasn't, he wasn't Fred. It wasn't Fred Gwynn. No. So that's the one thing where I'm going to be like, I'm going to go in this movie being like, I think it's going to be good. But what about Judd? I mean, I'm hopeful. Whoever they get, I mean, if Ewan McGregor can perfectly capture, you know, Obi-Wan's voice, I am hopeful for whoever they get to be Judd. <laughs> Could you imagine? What do you say? Red Gwyn's voice. I was gonna say, when you said that, I'm like, Ewan McGregor is Judd Crandall. I mean, oh my god, sure, no, I guess. No, 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 no. I mean, I would definitely be interested by that. I guess. I don't even know how that would work. I can't. I can't picture that. British mountain uh, man in the Northeast. Hello there. You to... <laughs> oh, I have the high ground. <laughs> it's over. So those two depictions to me kind of saved the movie in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Another great thing I really liked about the movie was the makeup. I mean, zombie Rachel is nightmare fuel, which yeah. has just that oozing like eye coming out of her. Yeah. In and the book and in the radio drama, I, they make it like ambiguous, like to be, did it work for Rachel because it was quicker? And yeah. the movie, they give you that really definitive answer of did it work? And no, it did not. Yeah. I kind of always took it in the book, at least that it did work because in the book i just kind of assumed but in the radio drama they make it a little bit more ambiguous huh. because in the radio drama he's playing solitaire at the end like he is in the book but how yeah. do you play solitaire on a radio drama so he's saying what he's doing he's like jack to queen red or whatever and then rachel's first line isn't darling is her telling him his next move or whatever oh you know what i mean Okay. And then he turns around and is like, darling. And she's like, darling. And it's like, that feels more, I don't like know anymore. Worked. Yeah. Like okay, I do like the fact that in the book, there's this one line that he just says her voice was filled with gravel. And I'm like, yeah. that's such a brilliant way Ugh. to convey that she is a full on demon now. Like that's such yeah. a brilliant way to do it. I love it. But yeah, her, her makeup in the movie, fantastic. I also really liked the way they did Pascal makeup. He was really good. His, I want to touch about, talk about Pascal for a second because yes his makeup was really good but like we we're talking about earlier where it touches upon book scenes yeah without actually having because in the book there's a very big very dramatic scene where lewis is trying to save pascal's life and it just doesn't work no and that's why pascal's like you tried to help me so i'm gonna try and help you yeah. in the movie he just gets pulled in put on a stretcher and lewis looks at him while he's dead and is like told my wife not maybe a sprain today not even a broken bone it's almost like and then you showed up yeah like why would he help him because yeah it makes no sense in the movie like it makes more sense in the book because there's even a scene where everybody's like dude he's gone like why are you even trying he's like no we're gonna try and he actually does try to help him yeah so it makes more and sense. He, he takes control of the situation after a second he, he does his best whereas in the movie yeah. it's just like oh here's a dead guy and he's like damn it i'm dealing with a dead guy talking about pascal a little bit more we kind of talked already about the fact that like it's lacking in that ethereal fear that we feel in the movies or in the book rather and i kind of think that ties in very strongly to pascal's appearances in ellie's dreams because again we're told that oh i have this terrifying dream mom but i almost wish they would have just shown it to us 
because yeah. the way she's describing the dreams in the book is terrifying. She says that she dreamed that her dad, Gage, and Church were all in the pet cemetery, and she checks in Gage's cradle, and it's empty, but it's filled with dirt. I kind of wish we could have seen that. And then that's what she, I'm talking about with visual storytelling would go there a long could have way. Been such, they really missed out on a lot of it because she doesn't even mention that in the movie. I don't think like mm-hmm. the actual she just dreams that Pascal told me like you know this is gonna happen. So they kind of I feel like missed the mark there. Like Ellie's dreams sound horrific and we don't really get to see any of them in the movie. That goes to a specific point I had where it's, you know, I love Stephen King with all my heart and soul. Yes. Stephen King wrote the screenplay for Pet Cemetery, and I love Stephen King. He's not a screenwriter. No. He's not. He's, I love he him. Wrote, I think he wrote the screenplay to another movie he did, didn't he? I think he so. wrote the teleplay for the Shining miniseries. Yes. And, yeah. oh, no. I've heard. Oh, my great. God. I yeah. watched it to talk with Megan about The Shining, mm-hmm. and I want four and a half hours back so badly. It's so long. There's so many scenes of like 10 minutes straight of people just talking back and forth. And I'm like, show, don't tell kind of going back to what we were talking about before with it's hard to translate his books into movies sometimes because so many of his books are just a lot of conversations but you, you don't just in the books get conversations you get little pieces like he's so good at weaving exposition and mm-hmm. like interior monologue and stuff into actual conversations and the action and stuff so you miss out on all of that in this movie in particular in pet cemetery because even the conversation where rachel and lewis are having like this big argument about death we don't get to kind of hear lewis in the background thinking about divorce and how he's terrified of becoming like his friends you get more of a look into lewis himself instead of just this blank slate of all the scenes they do adapt right from the book i feel like the one they don't which would have worked so well to just explain rachel's character on the right on the bat is when Mm -hmm. she tells lewis you as a doctor should know that there's nothing natural about death and he's like what are you talking about yes most natural thing there is yeah yeah. that little exchange tells you everything you need to know about those two characters yep i agree kind of jumping back to pascal real quick the one thing i kind of enjoyed about his representation in the movie versus kind of how he just like disappears when Ellie's dream stop is this little road trip he goes on with Rachel because it kind of hammers home the idea that they're like, yeah, it was goofy, it was hokey, but at the same time, it kind of hammers home the idea that it's not, you know, really so much good versus evil in this Mm -hmm. movie. It's just this ancient supernatural force versus, you know, a new supernatural force. And Pascal's trying to help. He's trying to like assist Rachel to get to Lewis in time. So if it, even though it is a little hokey to see him there, like helping her, stopping people from closing the airport and stuff Mm -hmm. it does hammer home the idea that there is a force trying to stop her from coming home and he's trying to counter that and give her a fair chance yeah especially with the ending of this is as far as i go too why you've been everywhere else needing necessary what's stopping you from going 10 more feet yeah i have two points about that that i Mm -hmm. think are a bit strange one i do kind of like how in the movie as opposed to like in the book someone just repairs rachel's car yeah and she can drive whereas in the movie it's a trucker stopping. And I do kind of like that dichotomy where it's like, here's a good trucker willing yeah. to give her a ride. And the same thing that took you, like, her kids helping her go back to her kid. I do like that mirroring. I think that's really good. On the same token, maybe I've seen too many horror movies, but 
the trucker just picking her up, no questions asked, and just being like, yeah, sure, come on for the ride. Nope, that's exactly what I thought, too. And I was like, no woman in her right mind would get in that truck. Like, no matter how badly you need to get there, you're like, no, I'm good, I'll walk, thank you. Yep, like, just even, like, a throwaway line of of him asking what his compensation for that is going to be is what I was expecting. And he was just like, out of the goodness of my trucker heart, I'm sure in the real world, there's plenty of truckers who would do that. I was going to say, in fairness, in the book, it is a good trucker who helps her fix her car and is very kind right. and wants to help her out. But yeah, no, just seeing that visually of a guy picking up a woman who's a very well-dressed and wearing heels for some reason uh, yep. on the side of the road, like was just like a little disturbing, it, especially yeah. in a horror movie. Yeah, especially in a horror movie where he's just like, don't worry about it. Help you fix all your problems, lady. I'm like, also no, Rachel, yeah. always in business attire. Yes. And I'm pretty sure she's a stay-at-home mom, also feels weird. In the book, she is always kind of dressed to the nines. We're to assume that she's just a very fashionable person, but I don't know. It was, what year was this written in? The 80s? 80s. I don't know. People dressed better, I guess, back then. I guess. I don't know. It's just in heels all the time. I don't know. It's just a thing where visually, again, it looks weird where it's like. It does. It looks very strange. You look like you're going into a board meeting, not a flight home to your parents' house. Exactly. It's it's very uncomfortable at some points. Do you want to have something else that you're disappointed about, Carrie? What? Last November, last July actually it went up and then it stopped going up in November. The, the house that Stephen King lived in that was based that he wrote Pet Cemetery in was on sale. It was <gasps> up for sale. How much did it go for? 280,000. That's it? That's it. Holy for that crap literally like the pet cemetery house it looks just like you imagine it from the movie on that road down the road from the actual pet cemetery Two hundred eighty thousand. I was going to say, in the edition of the book I have, I have the 1989 edition. So I guess it came out right around the time the movie did. It was my dad, so he gave it to me. That was like the first book I got from Stephen King. But reading his introduction there, apparently, like he full on, Pet Cemetery is based on his time that he lived in that house, pretty much doing almost the same job, like working at a university and yep. like had just had his first kid and like all this other stuff. And I was like, this is, or no, his second kid. He just had a second kid. And I'm like, this is like kind of terrifying that you sat down one day and we're like, gee, I have a great life. I wonder what would happen if something happened yeah. to What it. would happen if a truck ran over my young child? Well, he did say in an interview, I can't remember what year it was, that at the time that he wrote both this book and Cujo, his greatest fear was losing a child. And so yeah. that's why in both those books, people die. So Yeah, but that's what strikes me as so crazy about that is that so little of it is made up yeah because like i said that house is down the street from the pet cemetery but that's like again like going back to what we're talking about with the way he combines realistic horror with supernatural horror he just takes Hmm. one element of his life and flips it kind of in this book and it's amazing the way that he just does it because it's so realistic and terrifying kind of jumping back now sorry back to pascal the one thing i wish they had done differently in the movie i really wish they had kept in the scene with Steve Marston at the very end. Steve Marston, mm-hmm. is that his name? Yeah, Marston, okay. I so, think so. I think so. Steve, whatever his name is. In the movie, Pascal is the one who has this conversation with Rachel as Lewis is carrying Rachel's dead body across the streets to the pet cemetery. And he sees Pascal and he goes, but it'll work with Rachel this time. And Pascal's trying to tell him like, no, don't do it. I really wish- He's like, whatever, stupid ghost. Yeah. So I really wish though, they had instead included the the scene with Steve in the book. Because the scene with Steve, it's everything that is terrifying about the book in two paragraphs. Steve shows up, sees Lewis carrying her over the deadfall, 
wall and Lewis invites him like, hey, do you want to come help me bury her? And Steve, who has at this point had no knowledge of the pet cemetery, has had no knowledge of any of this stuff, is suddenly overcome with this desire that, yeah, I actually do want to go help you bury your dead wife in the pet cemetery. <laughs> and the only reason that he doesn't go do it is because the pet cemetery is full. It's not hungry anymore. So it lets him go. And it just, yeah. you know, is like, ah, oh, no, we've got Lewis. We don't need you. It's horrifying. Just that whole concept of this thing being so powerful that it's going to take a perfectly, like we know at that point, Lewis is insane. He's gone. Mm-hmm. But That's actually the, I think the creepiest scene in the audiobook, actually, yeah. because so they, they kept that scene. They kept that scene in the audiobook, and the, the guy who plays Lewis, he's a little bland at times, but he's also like whenever it's like absolutely traumatic horror, he goes from like bland to like oh my god, and it's like it's really good when he does that, but it's just it's too stark. Yeah. But when he's talking to him on the deadfall, he's like, "Hey man, want to come help me?" And it's just like full blown, like oh no, he's so crazy. Like yeah. he just sounds like chipper and cheery. And he's like, hey, come on, man. Come with yeah. me. Come with, come help me bury her. And it's like, he's fully gone. And it was pretty terrifying, honestly. That's something that Stephen King is so good at, is writing insanity. And he does a brilliant job in this book in particular of showing us Lewis's descent into insanity. Which mm-hmm. again, when you try to convey that into a movie, it's hard because the internal yep. monologue's not there. And we don't really get to see as much going on inside of Lewis's brain as we do in, t- in the books. Right. It's so- similar to how in The Shining, ideally it would be, like in The Shining in the book, he's constantly saying like how much he needs a drink. Mm-hmm. Like, oh God, I need a drink, I need a drink, I need a drink. Whereas how in the movie do you convey that someone needs a drink right now? Besides yeah. having him have a drink. Yes. Yeah. The Shining, I won't even get into that. That is just a different story. So that is one thing. I get what they were trying to do by having Pascal fill in that role. It just didn't work because... Mm-hmm. The scariest part about that whole scene with Steve is the fact that Steve is perfectly sane and has been in no way attached to this at all and suddenly wants to go help Lewis bury his dead wife in the pet cemetery because the thing was that strong. Oh, and we're talking about things that we wish had been in the movie. Oz the Great and Terrible and the Wendigo. (laughs) Wendigo is like the coolest monster and it's not in here except for that really weird scene towards the end. Yeah. Where like the face like pops out and he's like, oh, and then that's it. Pretty much what I was picturing, like, I wouldn't say it's exactly what I was picturing when I read the book, but it's close to what I was picturing. I was like, yeah, that's brilliant because it kind of proves the fact that it's not just the Wendigo in these woods. There are a whole fuck ton of spirits in these woods. And they are terrifying. And there is no earthly reason why a, like even a slightly insane person should be traipsing through these woods at that hour. But yeah, just not having the Wendigo there, not having the background of what makes a Wendigo is cannibalism and how the Wendigo soured the ground. Because that makes you realize that, okay, at one point this was real good territory, was actually something that could bring people back and animals back and it was probably fine they were probably okay but then whatever happened that caused a wendigo to exist Mm -hmm. soured the ground and you don't need it spelled out for you like you are pretty clearly sure like oh god there was a cannibal and it resulted in all of this horrible stuff happening the video game for the playstation 4 until dawn Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorite games just because of how much fun it is the main villain of that pretty much are wendigos and they're so scary and so cool and unlike with Gage later on where Gage is you know two foot five Wendigos are like you know ten feet tall that's 
That's terrifying. They're terrifying monsters. Yeah, it's kind of hard. And again, this goes back to the effects available to them at the time. So I'm not going to, well, I shouldn't even say that though, because think about 1989, they should have been able to do a more convincing effect sure. of someone wrestling a toddler than what ends up happening in the movie. It's just, it's not great. For the sake of actual horror, there's a idea around Wendigos or like a, a belief, I guess, around Wendigos where a Wendigo is constantly hungry and when it eats it gets bigger so it's still hungry even eating doesn't satiate its hunger it's so still hungry roll, say i didn't know that and that rolls in perfectly into the fact that lewis basically you know ends up inside one of the footprints of the wendigo and it's dinosaur sized footprint like right. it's, so that actually would have been really cool if they could have somehow shown that but they don't show so it. so like if gage is like possessed by a wendigo yeah. and when he kills judd he like mm-hmm. eats a bit of judd and gets bigger well he does he, eat a bit of judd yeah. in books yeah yeah and then when rachel comes and he kills rachel and eats a bit of rachel so then by the time lewis comes around gage could be huge or, or at least could be big yeah. and like actually yeah. intimidating yeah the way they did Gage was so terrible. There are so many other ways they could have done that. And honestly, the way that they had Rachel fly through like the attic trap door didn't make any sense. How's it? No, it's an effective jump scare. But... It's a jump scare, and that's it. So I think it's was... an effective jump scare, but it's like, how did he? Yeah, physically, set that how did he do that? It's similar to uh, in Child's Play with uh, Chucky. I always wonder. Like when Chucky tackles someone, A, how, and B, how do you not just throw that thing across the room? Exactly. How is Gage tackling anyone? And if he does, there's that scene at the end where he's like holding Gage on top of them and he has the scalpel. I'm like, how is he overpowering you in any way? Yeah. No, that's this big. In the books, he can obviously overpower Lewis. He just manages, like, he works with Church. That's the whole point. That's how he trips Judd up in the kitchen. Church and him kind of tag team because they're both so small. But they're these evil little demon monsters. So they're able to tag team and take down Judd. And then he's able to take down Rachel because she, just in that moment, is like, oh my god, my son. So that's why he's able to kill her. And he's only yeah, that, those make sense. But once you know he's evil, yeah. and he's attacking you. Come on, exactly. Now. Once Lewis comes, he knows that he's there to kill his son. He knows that his son is evil. The only reason he's even like tripped up for a second is because like he knocks the syringe out of his hand. That's it. Yeah. And then the rest of the time, he's like, "Hey, look, you are two years old, and I have you now, and I'm going to inject this yeah. in you." So yeah, and oh, also as much as the effects we were talking about, the effects aren't that great. I think the effects with Church are like really cool. They did. Yeah. Pretty good job with church yeah like the eye thing yeah yeah they, they did a good job of like that whole peeling him <sighs> off the grass because that's exactly what you're expecting to see yeah it was a really good like job hearing a t- ripping and tearing sound when you're picking up this dead cat and it's just like and he oh. had pieces of the trash bag stuck in his teeth and fur yeah, like everything that. with church was really cool yeah so basically just really the effects when it came to like gauge were terrible but and also the ending where after he injects them and gauge is like no fair no fair i'm like way to just suck out any tension in the room in the books oh actually two things about the books gauge in the books um the first thing is that whole second split second at the very end after lewis has emptied the syringe into gauge and the last thing he like realizes that oh for like a split second there as this thing was leaving his son as he was killing it he was gauge for Mm -hmm. like a hot second and that was when he screamed daddy and then he died 
So that yep. to me was even more horrific because it, it implies the fact that Gage was back, but he came back with something else in him. Yeah. And so it implies that the thing left Gage, leaving Gage alone and alive just long enough to torture Lewis. And then the second thing about Gage that I love about the books is the fact that in the movie, they cut out the major creep factor of these things when they come back, they have knowledge that they shouldn't be able to have. They know things about you. So the thing that came back in that Billy kid, like back in like, what was it, like 40s or 50s? Yeah, after, like during World after War II or something like that. The 40s, it knew things about Judd going to a whorehouse and about yeah. like all of his friends and stuff. And when it comes back the second time, it knows everything about Norma. And you could argue that, oh, he's probably, you know, he could be bluffing in the yeah. books. Like maybe Norma never did any of those things. But at the same time, if everything else is said was correct, why would it? Right. So it's just kind of one of those like small things that I loved about the, the book itself because it kind of just shows that these things aren't just they're not stupid they're intelligent and they know things and they're evil and they only say evil things it's really funny because this is like a, a repeat of to a certain extent of what I had talked with Megan yeah. she coined the term a by the book dick she's like I don't want to be a by the book dick but yeah. like, everything we say is just by the book you know it well in the book well in the book but it's yeah. true it's like when the book is this good and the movie's like like I said it's hard though which you know and again other things I, I know I touched upon The Shining a little bit before but I kind of put The Shining and Carrie into the same category when it comes to talking about movie versus the book because again those two movies are brilliant movies but they are not faithful adaptations to the books whereas this movie kind of is a faithful adaptation of the book at least plot wise but it falls so much shorter than the book does. I think it's probably one of the most faithful because it's written by Stephen yeah. King it's the Spark Notes version of the book that's a good way to put it yeah it is the spark nose version of the book it's just yeah, kind of no, like here's a scene here's a scene here's a scene we yeah, out pretty much it was all like of the plot was there but it like lacked so much substance behind the plot so definitely but yeah no i don't want to be a by the book dick by the but book, yeah. But the book is so good. So it's true. One random fact about this movie that I really like, Miko yes. Hughes, the kid who played Gage, also was in a movie that I love to pieces. He was also the little kid in Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Really? Great, great movie. That is a fun fact. It's just, I was waiting for a, t a period of conversation. I can throw that in there and this just seemed like as good as time as any. Yeah, it's good time as any. And another big change I do want to touch on really quick. Mm -hmm. The absence of Judd Crandall's wife, Norma, is yeah. huge. It is huge. I actually left a note in there. I just realized that's the only thing I can talk about. Having Missy in there and, and like kind of take her place. I don't understand it at all because Norma, the character, is really vital to the story. And is, kind like of, Norma's basically a plot device, but she's a necessary plot device. She is. Not only that, but she kind of also fills and enriches a bit more of Judd's character by being there. And it makes mm -hmm. the, the whole ending scene of Gage telling Judd that his beloved wife cheated on him numerous times with all of his friends a really big sucker punch. I'm confused about why they chose to have Missy take her place since Missy, the character in the book, is not a cantankerous person with stomach cancer. She's actually a very sweet and kind woman who babysits yeah. the kids a lot. And but it jumpstarts the whole book is Norma has a heart attack and because Lewis is a doctor and is right there for Halloween, she's yeah. able to, he's able to save her and get her to the hospital with minor, if any real long-term damage. Exactly. And Judd only brings Lewis to the actual pet cemetery, not the one where pets are buried just, you know, cause it's a cemetery, but the Micmac burial ground because he helped Norma. Yep. 
in so, the movie, it's just like, well, you know, I kind of felt like it. Yeah, it goes hand in hand with that whole idea of Lewis tried to help Pascal in the book. And that was the reasoning why Pascal wanted to help him. Cuts that out entirely. Like, there's no yeah. reason for it. Again, like, I'm not sure why they chose to do that. Because Norma probably would have used up as much screen time as Missy ended up using. Probably. So, All I have to have is, you know, her. She has arthritis. She's yeah. Judd's wife. And then, you know, have the trick-or-treat scene. Just throw yeah. that in there. And then, boom. Even if you have her die of the heart attack but have lewis try to help help. yeah then judd could easily just go you tried to help you did what you could you bought her another i don't know hour so i could say goodbye or whatever boom perfect motivation to bring them there's so many ways to work around that which is just like why it's so confusing to me that they just chose to go in complete opposite direction so when you introduce a character and then 20 seconds later she like hangs herself it's like oh yeah it made made no sense either because like obviously she wasn't a very pleasant person and like the creeds didn't like her all that much which Mm. is again not something that happens in the book so and again i hate to be a guy the book dick but (laughs) just saying there are better ways to go about that plot device in the movie exactly because you do need a second death i feel like in between because when you first get introduced to the pet cemetery ellie has that scene with her dad where she's like but what about church she's like oh church will be fine she goes but why does she have to die you know let god get his own cat yeah. And it's almost, and then Rachel can go like, "Ha ha, told you so." She shouldn't learn about death. And then later, when there's an actual death, mm-hmm. Ellie's like, "Okay, I'm cool with this. I'm okay with this. This happens." Yeah, that's a very natural and necessary thing for her character and her and for the story's trajectory. Yeah. But having it be Missy just being like, "Oh, by the way, she's dead." Yep. It's like, especially since she's such an unlikable person. It's almost like her entire existence on the screen, pretty much to me, is nothing but just you know. She's this unlikable person, and then she dies. And I'm like, all right, well, why should we care then? We don't. At least with Norma, we do care a bit because she is a pleasant person. And she obviously means something to Lewis and Judd and every other character that we care about. So, But yeah, so I wish they had left Norma in. Norma was a cool character. All right, so those are our thoughts on the film Pet Cemetery. Overall, I think it's fun. It's not a great movie, but unlike Starry Eyes, I think Pet Cemetery is definitely a movie night type of film. Throw that on with a couple of your buddies and put on, I don't know, Reanimator or something afterwards. Yeah, then you can rock out to the best part of the entire movie, which is the Ramones singing, I don't want to be buried yep. in the Pet Cemetery at the end. So. Pet cemetery. I feel like Reanimator is Pet Cemetery on steroids. That's accurate. Lewis, because Lewis makes the wrong decision like two or three times, whereas Dr. Harry West is like, I'm going to make the wrong decision 39 times. I'm going to make the wrong decision my entire life. <laughs> yep. I'm going to make three movies worth of bad decisions. Let's go. Reanimator. Such a good movie. Okay. Such a good movie. So yeah, pair this with Reanimator or something else or some other, one of the more campy Stephen King movies. That's pretty much all we got for this episode. Tune in next time. Carrie and I are going to be back with a bonus episode where we're talking about the best book to movie horror adaptations. You don't want to miss our picks, so tune in next time. And until then, stay scary, but keep it professional. Bye, everybody.